Good afternoon. Welcome, welcome. Today we have with us Mrs. Kathleen Cormack joining us today. You're welcome. We are very pleased to welcome you to another exciting installment of the Historian Speaks podcast. This podcast is an extension of our web platform, historianspeaks.org. We have published over 220 blogs and 18 podcasts on African-American life, history, culture, society, gender and sexuality since February of 2020. We have curated the COVID-19 pandemic and the protest last year, beginning with Breonna Taylor, going through George Floyd, going through Ahmed Aubrey, and of course, up through Dante Wright and into our present moment. Uh, we have covered events both domestically and internationally, and uh, this is an important uh, forum for discussions of contemporary African-American life. So we are pleased today to have with us Mrs. Kathleen Cormack, who is an educator and community activist. And so, Ms. Cormack, could you say just a little bit about yourself for our audience? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to join you today, Professor Stephen. Uh, yes, Kathleen Cormack, a Chicagoan, now resided in Florida, a master's degree actually in higher education administration, but I have several years of experience in both K-12 education along with higher ed education. So I currently work as a substitute teacher here, and I have done work in higher ed, worked at American University in D.C., a few other places. But after doing that and being in higher ed, I found myself here in Florida, and now I'm a substitute teacher, and I'm also a mentor and an advocate for young people, and I am really enjoying interacting with uh, with our youth. Okay, very good. Very good, Ms. Cormack. And so we're so pleased to have you. Uh, we're going to talk about a wide range of things today, and under the topic, the general topic, African American history and popular perceptions of the past, but we're going to really talk more about the how African American history is taught and discussed uh, in the schools, but then more importantly, let's get right into it. One of the things, we've seen a number of significant developments, and I started off by sort of talking about some of the things that we're doing here at Historian Speaks, and one of the most significant developments, if not the most significant development of the summer is the establishment of Juneteenth as a federal holiday. And it's uh, very interesting to sort of reflect on the Juneteenth moment in a summer when we normally celebrate July 4th, obviously, as the celebration of independence of the American colonists from the British. And so I wanted to start thinking about this whole notion of how we might conceptualize freedom in those two different and unique contexts. Last year, uh, for Historian Speaks, we ran a, a piece on freedom uh, and the ways in which African-Americans have sort of contributed to the idea of American freedom. But it's very interesting then, now with this national holiday, we can think a bit more about how African-Americans are conceptualizing their own freedom, and that is the end of legalized slavery in the, in the United States. And of course, the end of that project coming with the Declaration of the Emancipation Proclamation, promulgated uh, in 18, January 1st, 1863, and then of course, the formal 13th Amendment in 1865. So any thoughts about those two different ideas uh, of freedom? I mean, what are your thoughts from the perspective of a community activist or and an educator? Well, you know, interestingly, I have known people even before we were granted this Juneteenth holiday. I have known people who had already been celebrating Juneteenth and not 
celebrating July 4th. So for me personally, I stopped celebrating July 4th several years ago myself. So I think that I, I'm not too, I'm not too surprised that there are uh, people in my circle who July 4th for them and for myself, I, I'm just, I just stopped looking at that as being an, a holiday for us, so to speak. So I think when we look at all that's still going on, the first thing I, I, I say to myself when we, when we were finally granted Juneteenth as the holiday is first, what took so long for that? You know, and then now, even with that being said, while I'm glad that it has been granted a holiday finally, I just wonder if that's going to change many of the things that we see that needs to be changed. I mean, yes, we've been granted this holiday, but we're still now back to fighting for voting rights. You know what I mean? So I think I kind of see it. I, I kind of see it from two different, two different angles, so to speak. Right. So we'll come back to that. I think that's a really important observation because, again, we often talk about the ways in which uh, these federal holidays, certainly it's a lot of discussion about the King holiday. And I can remember as a boy in uh, 1986, that was the first, I was a senior in high school. And uh, that was the first, in January of uh, 1986, that was the first formal celebration of King's holiday. And again, just like Juneteenth, African Americans had been celebrating and commemorating, I should say, the life and legacy of Martin Luther King from the mm-hmm. time he was assassinated up through the granting of a federal holiday. So you're right in the sense that African Americans are never waiting for someone to say, this matters. Mm-hmm. They're celebrating it or commemorating the life of Dr. King. He was a, a extremely important and influential figure, obviously, in the African American project. And so, uh, and, and even the fight for his holiday, that was not not something that was granted because Ronald Reagan was opposed to it. Mm-hmm. And it was really the efforts of people like uh, Stevie Wonder, Bob Marley, and many of the old school rappers. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, King Holiday crew. They did a album commemorating to commemorate the first celebration of uh, King's birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, a, it was a consortium of rappers, the Fat Boys, Run DMC, Houdini, Grandmaster Flash, all of these old school rappers who were at the center, what we call now sort of old school rappers now, along with people like Whitney Houston and and Tina Marie and a host of other folk who were actively involved in uh, Minuto's, a popular Puerto Rican group at the time, and a host of others, Run DMC, a host of others who were active in sort of promoting uh, the project. And so we see the same with Juneteenth. That uh, African Americans, from the very moment of emancipation, celebrated things called Freedom Days, Jubilee Day, <laughs> Emancipation Day, and those efforts uh, outside of those who were in Texas who found out very late about the actual emancipation that African Americans use commemorative culture in this country to commemorate yes. emancipation, and so sort of taking it into their own hands. And I think this is also true of Juneteenth. And you mentioned, of course, that you had stopped celebrating uh, July 4th, but in fact, that really understood the importance of something like a Juneteenth long before it became a federal holiday. And I think it's really much of what we see in terms of these holidays really is a groundswell from below rather than an edict from above, right? So, so Yes. 
Yeah, that's the thing. And so we often see then that these things occur in moments when there are a lot of debates about the challenges that African-Americans are facing. And so I think the voting rights, you raise a very important point here about the voting rights challenge. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well in terms of the way in which we have voting rights guaranteed with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But we know that there are a number of uh, devices that are being used to suppress the Black vote. And we see this all over the country, and especially from Republican legislatures, in light of what happened in the 2020 presidential election. And so we might ask ourselves, how do we, at one moment, we we are experiencing the, the triumph of this Juneteenth holiday, but then on the other, there's so much work to do with some of the basic guarantees of citizenship. And so so what would be how would we respond? Yes, it's like it's definitely like the two the two just do, do not go together. It's you you just said it perfectly. On the one hand, yes, okay, we have this Juneteenth holiday. But then on the other hand, we're back to fighting for voting rights. So it's just so unbalanced to me where we are and what where we have arrived to. And you you talked about like I I know you want to touch on uh what's being taught in the schools. But since since you said that, how do we take that, you know, professor, and how would we take that into the classroom? How do we, if we, I always ask myself, if I were to dev- to design a curriculum, what would that look like now? And I'm talking uh, K twelve. You know, you 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 want to, you you want to make we want to make our youth avail- uh, aware of Juneteenth and what it means and, and why we have it and why we celebrate it. But then we do that, and then now, and but we also have to add along with that. But here we are back to our votes trying to be suppressed. You follow what I mean? I think is right, right. So, that, so that's a real challenge, I think, in terms of how we might approach those kinds of issues. There's always uh, the way in which, when we think about curriculum and designing our lesson plans and so forth, there are always opportunities, I think, to be creative and talk about history not as something that's sort of the dead and buried past, but in fact, something that's living and breathing and that very much impacts uh, our contemporary realities. And so mm-hmm. we, we always have to be mindful when we're talking about the historical past in terms of the ways in which there are I- important intersections to what's going on in the present and then also the way in which it shapes our future. And so the future, the future decisions, the ways in which we are kind of thinking about how we need to, what we need to do how we need to sort of safeguard certain kinds of projects was really we're almost at a point where if we look at the long fight from the securing of African-American rights in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and then the erosion of those rights leading to Jim Crow by 1896, we're seeing attempts on the part of these Southern legislatures to sort of take us back to a moment where we have a lot of that those Jim Crow projects in hand, which were used to kind of devices that were used to make it difficult for people to vote in the South and thus diminish Black voting strength. And we see similar kinds of projects going on in the contemporary moment. So I think there's a way in which the our curricular projects have to be engaged with our present realities. And so we're thinking about a historical lesson in terms of thinking about how these ideas emerged over slavery and post-slavery periods, and then Jim Crow, and then the fight to overturn many of these voting restrictions, and then the success of something like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, we can then uh, think about 
larger kind of civics projects, you know, marrying that to kind of these larger civics projects in terms of thinking about, well, what do we need to make sure that we can guarantee uh, voting rights for all of our citizens in a consistent way? And mm-hmm. what race played in diminishing these kinds of possibilities for citizens? And and also the ways in which we're uh, attempting, attempting kind of use voting laws that are designed really to be inclusive and we're trying to narrow them so that we can eliminate or restrict the way that people have access to the poll uh, as opposed to expanding well, that kind of process. So, and, and that's closely linked, I think, to a civics kind of project, a government project, a politics project, where we're talking about locating that in what should the citizens be? And there, there is no, there should not be attempts to restrict what citizens can do and especially in terms of voting, which is really one of the bedrocks of a democratic society. And exactly. So these, these are things that these kinds of discussions, I think, can be useful in helping us to kind of think about who we are as citizens. I mean, this, this is just not about Black folks, right? This is about exactly. All of us, it's not right. It's not and, all of us, yes. And what it means to be a a member of of a democratic society. And I and I think that those are the kinds of challenges. And I think this is really one of the real bedrocks here in terms of kind of thinking about uh, what African-Americans have contributed to the republic and the ways in which our issues really do help to illuminate some of the problems or the short-sightedness or the shortcomings of the of the republic. And mm-hmm. the, which we, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to add, you know, in thinking about K-12, one of the things I would like to see more of is you 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 get you get a lot of uh for people to work with height when a when a person becomes a, a junior or a senior i think that would be a great time that you have advocates or like myself i consider myself an advocate and a mentor and i've been thinking about this as a substitute teacher what i like to see more of is we start working more with juniors and seniors and by the time that they're seniors you already have a group of names of students that you're going to take down to the polls to get them registered to vote. And that might seem like a little small thing to think about. So many of us just decided to do that and how impactful that could be. Because granted, unfortunately, I still know some people who was, what is it? Uh, you turn 18, you can vote. Right. Well, you still have some some uh, students that age who don't understand the importance. And from what they hear and see, well, my vote doesn't count. Now, fortunately, I don't hear that a lot, but they do exist. So if we can first start there, first getting back, getting that back into the schools, the, the civics and explaining and really letting them understand the importance of voting and catching them right when they turn 18. And I, I think that could be a good start. So, yeah, I was just saying that, you know, to start there, you know, with those who are in high school. So by the time they turn 18, you already have a list of students that you're going to have registered to vote. How do we how do we get get them right away? You know, right, to, right. to get yeah. them. Well, right, and I, and I think that's uh, important. I mean, I can remember as a, as a boy, my parents really modeled uh, civic behavior for me, and we would always they would always take us, even though they were they they believed in the importance of voting. So they were my parents were the children of sharecroppers in the South. Mm. They grew up in North Carolina, and as a result, neither was able to get even a high school education. Uh, my father was a, a janitor with a third grade education, 
and he had taught himself to read. And my mother had a 10th grade education. And so as a result, they had a quest for education and civic participation. And I can remember as a boy, almost as a ritual, and I've, and I've actually talked about this elsewhere, that we would go every year to the polling place with so the local elections. And then, you know, we would follow the election cycle. So we would go to the polling place. I saw, so we would have to wait in the car. My brother and I would have to wait in the car for them to come. And we knew it was a ritual. They'd go and vote and then we'd come back and so forth and so on. And so I saw that as sort of normal behavior as a boy. And it was important because we watched it. You know, my dad watched the local conventions. He would read the newspaper. He watched 60 Minutes. He was always interested. He was going to be like a political junkie. So I've been watching political conventions since 1976. <laughs> That's a habit I picked up from him. Um, and so I always say like my parents were sort of the, the people who modeled this kind of civic uh, behavior, but also this intellectual behavior in terms of voting and active engagement, because they understood the uh, what it looked like when you couldn't participate right? mm-hmm. because of the conditions that they had grown up under. And um, that was a really powerful. So, so I think that your suggestion is an extremely powerful one, that you literally take folk to the polls. And so that's what happened by... My parents took me to the polls, and then when I turned 18, I got involved in a, in a political campaign, and I was assigned to work as a poll watcher and as an uh, advocate for a candidate, uh, and so you had to stand 100 uh, yards from the entrance of the polling place, right, and you could uh, advocate for your candidate. That day, I was doing that work. I looked up, and lo and behold, here come my parents. <laughs> so, man, I'm I'm sitting at the polling place, so so the kind of the roles are reversed, right? But it's right. sort of come we've, we've, it's come full circle now, because I'm in the at the polling place, advocating for these candidates, and they're going past past me, going into voting, and so it was kind of it was sort of a coming of age moment and a very right. moment because um, it is precisely the model that they had provided for me that allowed me then to become a engaged citizen. And mm-hmm. yeah, so, so I think that's a very powerful suggestion. You offer Yes, exactly. And and I was just going to say, I, I just remember, I don't even remember if my parents, I, I'm sure they must have instilled it in me, but I just remember turning 18 and just being excited that, it, that I was now ready to vote. And I couldn't see not wanting to, right. you know, having understood that at one point we weren't allowed to. So for me, it was exciting to cast that first vote. Right. Yes, to be sure. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we need to instill at that sense of, of civic pride, civic responsibility into our young people. And I, I don't want to suggest that it's not there. Right. Uh, but I think that where, where we don't see it, we need to instill it. And where we can have young people who are on fire for voting and, and interested in this kind of civic activity that they in various parts of the country as yes. well. And so yes. we need those kinds yes. of efforts to do, you know, to do that kind of work. So I think that's critically important. And it's and it's something that one has to be ever vigilant about, you know. And and I think that's what we're seeing in a contemporary moment where we can't sort of rest on the laurels of the past, that this is something that uh, we have to be very vigilant about in terms of the kinds of work that we're doing mm-hmm. and what we're hoping to achieve in that regard. Yeah. So I think And I think you're exactly right. You do have quite a few young people who are very excited about voting. 
And I think that they are the ones that could lead their friends for the ones who are not. Right. You know, absolutely. And then I think also, as you mentioned, we want to also help people understand the importance and to give them something to vote for. Right. And so I think yes. the other part of it, to give folks something to vote for. And, I, and so I think that so not only is it voting, but also encouraging uh, folk to be involved in the political process, thinking about political careers. And, and that doesn't mean just in the Congress, but also at the local level. You know, the Very much level. the local level. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said the local level, because yeah. many times we don't understand the importance. Many people don't understand the importance of vote, voting at the local level, because I admit it wasn't until I got to be in my late 20s or so when I really understood the importance of the local elections. Right. To be sure. And that certainly is something that I think uh, can be uh, critically important. I know uh, when I was growing up, I was growing up in Baltimore County and we were, I guess, as I got older, most most folks, most African-Americans who were in Baltimore County had come from Baltimore City. So I, when I was born, I lived in Baltimore City, I guess, for about three years, three or four years on the east side of Baltimore. And the crime and the conditions were such that my parents decided to move. And so we moved to Baltimore County before I entered preschool. And we were sort of a part of a wave of people who were moving out of Baltimore City into Baltimore County. And it was really not until I got to high school, I was almost out of high school. Yeah, I think it was a junior or senior where the numbers in Baltimore County had reached kind of a critical tipping point for African-Americans. And so there was a real push on the part of African-Americans in the county to push for representation on the school board. And so some of the first efforts, so those of us who were some members of the HBCUs and and others were active in that work and um, trying to do that. So so after I'd been involved in that first activity in when I was 18, I stayed involved to work on county council Pollux with several, uh, I'm a graduate of Morgan State University, which is an HBCU in Maryland, and so uh, several other uh, Morganites who were active in uh, what's called the Liberty Road Corridor, which is the main corridor that runs through Baltimore County, that runs into Baltimore City, and the um, they were active in trying to get African Americans on the on the on the county council and then on the school board. So that was a real awakening as well. So I think that. The importance of sort of being involved in local politics is really central, I think. Um, I think so, too. Yeah. And I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned the school board, because we know just looking at education in general, it, how important it is to have a, diver, a diverse group of people yes. that sits on these school boards. I'm, I'm, I think now, obviously, we see it more. But I you know, realized the importance of even that later on. You know, right. you need people on the school board that's. You have, you know, count in areas where you have predominantly black and brown children and you look at the school board and it doesn't always speak to the representation sometimes just not there is what I mean. That's that's a critically important component of all of this as well. So voting has all of these interesting kinds of uh, implications and it's closely linked to these ideas of freedom that we've been talking about, not only in terms of the recognition of these kinds of uh, projects, but also in terms of the ability of people to really achieve sort of their, their God-given rights as citizens. So that becomes, I think, critically important in terms mm-hmm. of those kinds of issues. Now, so, since we've been talking a lot about school boards and political activity and, and <laughs> uh, the necessity of working at the local level, 
Let's turn to, and you had mentioned this to me before regarding the Ruby Bridges incident. I think it's a great moment to kind of turn to talk a little bit about the heroism of Ruby Bridges. And then that now there's some sort of contemporary issues that are going on around Ruby Bridges and her. And we know Ruby Bridges was a teenager who became the subject of a Norman Rockwell painting. And she participated in the desegregation of the William Franz Elementary School in Louisiana in 1960. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the Ruby Bates controversy or... Yeah, you mean Ruby Bridges. You know, now she... I think of Daisy Bates. No, you... <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there was, there, was a, there was a Daisy Bates. There was a Daisy Bates, I think. Right, in Little Rock piece. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, she was the Little Rock. It's okay. But they're all, they're it, all one of the same piece. <laughs> that's right. It's it's okay to kind of slide her name in there too. Though she yeah she deserves she deserves their recognition. That's quite all right. Yeah, so Ruby ancestors in exactly. We just kind of slip them on in there. Yeah, now yeah, because Ruby Bridges she was only six years old. Was it nineteen sixty? When she that's right. Yeah, in in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, right. when she uh, integrated the school. And let let me let me just say this, Professor Stephen. Now. Let's go back just for a minute. I want to stay with the Ruby Bridges, but I can't. I want to go. I just want to kind of say this is an interesting little tidbit. Ruby Bridges was born in I want to say 1954. Okay. She was born the same year that Linda Brown, the Supreme Court case, the right. Brown what? versus Board of That's Education. Right. Yeah, and I I just think that that. I, I get excited wow. when it comes to uh, black history over the, even right. just the smallest little details. Right. How, yeah. how neat is that? That she was, it's almost like she, she was destined when she was born. I, she I, was I, to be born in 1954. Her parents probably had no idea that what, six years later, she right. would be integrating a school following, so to speak. I mean, I, in the footstep, if you will, of Linda Brown, who that the uh, Supreme Brown versus Board of Ed. And that's a wonderful, powerful point. And, and even as you were talking about that, I'm thinking now about the fact that these black women are really at the center of these early school desegregation moments, right? The Brown, right. you got Brown in 54, Bates leading the group, you know, through, with the NAACP in 57, and then Bridges in 60, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's all beginning with B, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, yeah. So, so the centrality of Black women in these projects as well is really, really important. But yeah, that 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 was a great, yeah, that's a great observation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because I often, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I was just going to say, because I often, you know, at one point I had to get it clear in my mind is I'm like, okay, wait, Linda Brown. So we have two little, we have two little Black girls that did this great thing. Yeah, 1954 was Linda Brown, who, you know, sadly is now our ancestor who has left us. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. But Ruby Bridges is, is, is still here. So I just find I just find that so fascinating. And I I cannot. you And it's hard not to, Professor Stephen, for me, it's hard not to have this conversation about Ruby Bridges and and even, you know, Linda Brown thinking about them both and just visualizing what it must have been like to be that young, to go through such, to have such the animosity tossed at you because you were trying to integrate a school. Racial trauma 
right? We talk, we talk about yes. that a lot of discussion about that in our contemporary moment. But then we, if we look at a company to school by U.S. Marshall. Yeah, it was just getting good. It was just getting good. <laughs> right, so right. You... I, I just mentioned racial trauma. Uh-huh. And the fact that we talk about that a lot today. There's been a lot of discussion around that with the protests and other issues and police brutality and so forth. But this has been a longstanding issue in our communities. And the way in which this has also impacted children as well. And we're also seeing this again, I think, with the, the way in which uh, this uh, police brutality piece has played out. Many young Black children are being killed by the police, both men and women. So that's an, an, an interesting uh, dynamic. So the fact that these folks are being escorted to school by the National Guard and by a U.S. Marshal. Yes. And, and you, <laughs> Professor Stephen, and the, the funny the funny thing is, I have that Norman Rockwell painting yes. I, I, of Ruby when he did the uh, painted the Ruby Bridges, the, the little girl. Yeah. And I ordered it like two years ago. Okay. And, you know, I didn't realize until I bought the painting. I just bought the small, you know, right. it's, 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 but I have it hanging on the wall. In fact, I'm looking around my apartment because we've just moved. And I'm looking around like, wait, I don't have my picture hanging. I must have not unpacked it yet. But <laughs> I did not know until I bought this, the picture. It's kind of like a portrait. Right. I didn't right. realize that the word N-I-G-G-E-R was painted at the top. Did you right. know that? that right. is and, and that's an important observation, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, looking at it now myself, right? Uh, that is a very powerful, right? I, I hadn't realized that either. Yeah. Right. I didn't realize it until I, until I purchased right. so, um, yeah, it's a very it's a very powerful piece. I need to make sure I get that out and hang it up. I guess I just right. because I just it's just so hard not to not to visualize. We we uh, Linda Brown may she rest in rest in power. Uh, yeah. Ruby yeah. Bridges, and I know we I know we're talking about K twelve, but you mentioned if if I can just say just for a quick second, you mentioned. Daisy Bates. Yeah. Now, so now we're talking right. teenagers. Right. So it's it's like okay, we 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 start from K twelve. We can we can start there with the racial trauma, but it doesn't end there. Then we right. we're teenagers now, still trying to integrate schools and being taunted. And you know, it's so easy for me to for me personally to to sit here and think to myself. How can one not expect for many of us to still, even if it was not us personally being taunted, there is definitely still some racial t- trauma that exists, I believe, with a lot of us who haven't quite healed. You know what I'm saying? I think just looking at our past and all that we have overcome, there's definitely some trauma there. I, I'm not saying that we don't deal with it well. I'm just saying, how can it not be there when, when we when we think about even what kids as young as what they were had to go through. Right, to be sure. And so I think that's an important observation in terms of our thinking about this whole K-12 dynamic and the ways in which young people have endured some really challenging moments here, Mm -hmm. um, really to deal with some of the real problems in terms of granting uh, access to uh, education for for African-Americans. And of course, that education, of course, then uh, leads us directly to uh, the issues that we are talking about earlier in terms of civic uh, engagement. So these are, I think, very important kinds of discussions, and it raises some interesting questions uh, questions and ideas. And questions again, and ideas, yeah. And, and in the painting, you see the focus is really on bridges. Uh, yes. 
between the marshals and then the violence of the moment, you know, we were focusing on the, the use of the term nigger on the sprawled on the wall, but then also the the stain from what appears to be a, a tomato um, right, right. Thrown at the wall. And so this trauma is tremendous. And so she's just sort of there, this this little black girl with her hair and the pigtails going <laughs> going to school. So this is a really interesting, uh, interesting piece. So yeah, it raises so many interesting kinds of questions in terms of thinking about these issues. So what I wanted to do, uh, yeah, but this has been a very fascinating discussion. It's raised some very interesting points about uh, our connections to the past and our thinking about uh, about history. What do you think, in, in terms of your concluding comment, what do you think are some of the things, maybe two or three things that we can do to make voting more of a reality? Well, first, I think to sort of appreciate the importance of celebrating African-American freedom. Second, to make voting a real and sustainable project. And then third, to uh, make sure that our young people have an education uh, that gives them access to an understanding of that history. And just, just in a very, maybe in, a, in, in maybe about 10, 15 seconds, what would you say about that? I, I think I'm going to say as a mentor and as an educator, I am going to continue to do my part in uh, teaching our young people the importance of voting and constantly getting that Black history over to them. And fortunately, I interact with quite a few uh, students outside of the school system. So whatever it is that I'm not supposed to say in the classroom, I, I'm glad that I am a mentor because it allows me that I'm able to say it outside of the classroom. Don't get me wrong. I'm just trying to stay within the framework of, you know, as an educator, as a substitute teacher, right, right. I have to, you know, make sure that I'm staying on point. So I'm just going to say that, that I think we just have to continue to just be advocates and we have to mentor, come up with interesting ways to, you know, teach the importance of voting in and why we vote local election why we vote for president, you know, what happens when we do not? Because a vote, when you do not vote, you're actually casting a vote for the other person. I think we, it just has to be ongoing. It just has to be ongoing in order for us to continue to get the information out and the importance of why we vote, why we have to vote, why and why you should not cast your vote. I think it just has to be an ongoing project. And I just think that it's up to us, people like myself, who are educators and passionate about it, to make sure we're constantly dropping that information onto young people. Right. Very good. And then, so I think that's a really fitting way to end this very uh, exciting and illuminating discussion. Let me just take this opportunity, Ms. Carmack, to thank you for participating in our podcast. You're quite welcome. Okay. Thank you. This has been the Historian Speaks podcast. We're grateful to Ms. Kathleen Carmack, educator and community activist, for talking with us today about the importance of freedom, the importance of education, importance of voting rights. We encourage you to visit our blog at historianspeaks.org and listen to the rest of our podcast. This is Historian Speaks, signing out. Thank you and have a blessed day.